Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining once again, everybody. On today's episode of Higher Potential Living Podcast, I am joined by Catherine Connors. Catherine is a social worker, a yoga teacher, all around fantastic person. And in today's episode, you're going to learn a little bit about how her own life struggles led her career as well as her passion towards adoption. And she's going to talk a lot about the the process of adoption as well as some of the struggles that uh, people go through when they're trying to conceive, some ways around that. And then she's going to let us into a little glimpse into her life of how she ended up discovering a lot more about complex needs and had to kind of continue to hone in her craft and uh, learn on the job as it were. So um, I had a great time chatting with Catherine. I hope you get something out of this episode and enjoy. Hello and thanks for joining me, Catherine. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, I've known you for a while. We've done yoga together, yoga teacher training. And uh, it's amazing how when I start talking to someone about doing a podcast episode, that I start to learn so much more about people. But I knew I knew going into this that you uh, are a social worker. But so many of my best friends are social workers. And what I've discovered is everyone who kind of gets into social work has some sort of a some sort of a spark that started their passion or a bit of a story or something. So I was wondering if we could start there and if you could explain to us all a little bit about what kind of got you into the field of social work. For sure. And it's funny, every social worker I know has a colorful past. We get into it because <laughs> we've experienced something interesting. So uh, in my specific case, um, I got into social worker as uh, social work as a result of my family upbringing. So I grew up with a sister who had significant mental health issues um, in and out of uh, facilities and medications and a bunch of diagnoses. So my my childhood, although it was fantastic and loving, it was also chaotic, and there wasn't a lot of support at that time for siblings. Um, and so I went into social worker because. I didn't get the help that I needed and I was wanting to be that help for another child and I wanted to change the world. And I learned that that's not how the world works. Um, so, you know, I finished my degree and went right into the field of autism. And I did that because I developed some really great non-verbal communication skills as a child living in the family that I did. And I found that I had a connection with individuals with autism. So I was in that field for many years. Um, I flipped into crisis social work for a little bit. Didn't last too long because that was way too uh, <laughs> triggering and personal, I guess, for me. Um, and then really it was when we, my husband and I adopted our three kids that I actually flipped into the adoption side of social work. So you just gave us like... Yeah, this overarching like uh, story. So we're gonna we're gonna slow things down a bit and break that down. So one of the things that you talked about was the support for siblings, and that's something that I feel with so many different uh, traumas and complexities of life is something that's really overlooked. So when you kind of yeah. got into social work and all this, was there any headway made on like what were you able to kind of find with that? Um. Well, I know specifically, like, in the field that I was working, like, the special needs field or the disabilities field, um, you know, we had tried to do, like, sibling workshops and sibling support groups. Um, there there was some development of, like, one-to-one counseling. Uh, but honestly, even today, I don't think it's where it should be um, oh. because the resources are limited and, you know, people want funding for those who have the diagnosis. So, I mean... Yes, there has been some movement, but absolutely it's not where where it should be. I know, like even for me growing up, I remember being pulled out of class 
to go to these therapy sessions with my families and I'd miss recess time. And so I'd come in and there would be the cliques or they would have built a snow fort and I couldn't be a part of it because, you know, I wasn't there. And, you know, those things actually really affect children growing up, but it was never addressed. And so, you know, I don't think that there's too much headway, at least that I've seen. Yeah, like my experiences um, with one of the previous podcast episodes that I've recorded, I talk about that that camp that I volunteer at. And at that camp, it's all children that are, you know, in some way affected by cancer. And they they make that distinction, kids that are affected by cancer, because it's not necessarily the sibling that has the cancer. So they actually, it wasn't something that was right off the get-go, but they ended up coming up with a program for the the siblings. And that was such an eye opener to just sit and actually listen to the stories that the kids had to say, because like often, often what happens is that other child that's not necessarily the one who has the complex needs or the one that we're all doting on can either become a punching bag for frustration, can be a witness to all kinds of things that you know, a young child just shouldn't be witness to conversations that they're overhearing and all this kind of stuff. And in some cases, um, in, in that particular instance, these were bereaved siblings. So they would have lost their, their brother or sister to cancer. And, you know, the way that different parents react in those situations as well can be um, varied depending on how that process goes, how people handle stress and grief differently could cause in separation, all this. So, so much went on behind the scenes and no one, no one for a very long time thought about the siblings. And, and it's, uh, it's true. I, again, in this situation, I didn't even extend that. And that just goes to show like my own ignorance on the situation. I saw that in this specific world of like cancer, but of course that would trickle out to every kind of like everyone's in a complex situation and yeah it's really interesting to just kind of open our eyes to that a little bit yeah and i think that you know having people speak out about it a bit more is what is going to be the best way for that education piece so having the siblings who grew up like me and is now an adult saying like this this was lacking in in my childhood what can we do to help it to help the future generations or to help my children in uh, their support. So, I mean, I think part of it is recognizing, like you said, and, and learning from it, but now what do we do with it? And hearing from the voices of youth of what they actually need, I think is, is key. And so, yes, there's some great programs out there, but is it actually helping? Is it just some facade that we're saying, because of course we're talking about the siblings, but is it actually meaningful? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how that trickles out with like, how much do the teachers know? So if these children are acting out in different ways, or if they seem like they're not focusing on their schoolwork, well, maybe they're not because their mind is thinking about what's happening at home, what's happening with, yeah, all this kind of stuff, really. Um, it's just, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge issue. And uh, yeah, like I say, I could see where coming into it with all this energy of like, yes, I'm going to make a change. And then just like looking up at the mountain from the base of it and say like, Oh my goodness, where do I start with something like this? Yeah, that was probably a lot more delicate than what I was actually saying at the time when I realized, Mm. like, I don't know if we can swear on the podcast, but realizing like, OMG, this is actually a lot harder than I thought. And I was like, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to make a difference and no one's going to be like me growing up. And I was like, Oh, it's actually not that easy. And I don't know where to start. And you know, uh, doing a support group once a month isn't actually going to do much, although it's a start. So, I mean, hopefully someone else can can take it on. And social work, like people burn out often, and we burn out for various reasons. There's very high turnover rate. One, obviously, it's an underpaid profession, but two, it's we're dealing with very hard personal situations. And like you had alluded to before, like we get into social work because our hearts are there and because we have this lived experience. So if we're reliving our own trauma and not actually helping and supporting people, there's going to be that burnout. So mm-hmm. I've, I've had a few decisions, but, but luckily I've been able to stay in the adoption field for about five years now. And I've kind of found my comfort. So mm-hmm. I'm lucky that. And that's a really interesting distinction as well, where often we have our background, our trauma, whatever we've gone through that makes us really passionate to kind of get into 
the doorway into this kind of stuff. But then being able to say like, maybe this is too close. And maybe that, yes, I, I can still make a difference in some parallel fields, but maybe this, the thing that I actually lived through, maybe this is too close for me to do my best work. Because if I myself am getting triggered and you know re, reliving all these experiences every time I'm talking to a new client or something like that, am I fully with that client or am I caught up in my, my past myself? So that alludes to a yeah. lot of self-care work that needs to also take place from that. But I think we're going to get to that in a second. So okay. you got into social work and you're doing this kind of stuff with um, special needs, complex needs, a little bit of crisis and all this. So then you, you talked about the, the three lovely children that you have. So what happens in between coming out, getting your degree, you know, putting on your super person cape and then having those children? Oh, well, the cold notes version, I guess, would be, um, you know, I fell in love uh, with my partner, my husband, and before we got married, we wanted children. Like that, I wanted to be a mom beyond anything else in this world. And so even like when we were engaged, we were trying to have children and it wasn't working and we figured, okay, timing, whatever. I was, I was pretty young. I was in my mid twenties, um, got married a couple years later. Then, you know, we're trying on and doing all these things, taking my temperature, drinking some weird tea, like doing this acupuncture stuff wasn't working. So finally went to a fertility doctor after about two and a half years. And he's like, Oh, you have stage five endometriosis. The only way that you're going to be able to conceive is through in vitro fertilization or IVF, which I mean, is needles every day and prescriptions. And it was horrible. And, and the downside of IVF and endometriosis is that the medication actually furthers the disease. So the longer you do IVF, the more advanced your disease gets. So we had a short window of time to try this before I became extremely sick from endometriosis. So we did it longer than we should have. Um, we did about nine rounds, which anyone who does IVF, this is before it was covered. So like it's hundreds of thousands of dollars we spent on this. Wow. Um, we had... Um, five pregnancies and the first one was um, an atopic pregnancy that ruptured and so I had to have emergency surgery and I lost a tube and an egg um, I had lost twins at one point and then our final which again had to um, go through surgery and our final pregnancy I was 18 weeks um, and it was a significant um, sudden um, miscarriage um, and I lost so much blood I actually went into cardiac arrest so at that point my doctor was like okay you need to you need to stop whatever it is that you're doing you're done and at that point the endometriosis was all in my internal organs like it was shutting things down so we knew it was time um, so we stopped and I went into intensive therapy because that's significant losses concurrent losses um, and then to be told, basically, you can't, you're done. Uh, I didn't want to hear that. Um, I think that really pushed us into trying to figure out, well, how do we become a family? So that's how we went into adoption. And so to be clear, adoption was never a second choice for us. It wasn't a plan B. It was just a way for us to have a family. And so we didn't care how or when or why we had children or became a family, but that's kind of how we got into it. And the adoption was slow and quick at the same time. So we went through all of the, you have to do training. It's called pride training. And it's like 27 hours of in class. You have to do homework. You have to, you know, do all this stuff. And there's also the safe home study, which is social workers meet with you. And they ask you very, very vulnerable questions. I'm, I'm talking like questions about your sex life and questions about your marriage and your upbringing and, and, you know, all the, your philosophies on life and your parenting skills. And, you know, they weren't actually going to approve us because I had a sister with significant mental health issues. Um, and when she passed away, I, I wasn't healthy. My mental health wasn't good. So um, they weren't going to approve us, but thankfully they did. And but by the time we got approved, which is about January, I would say of 2013, we were matched with our daughter, our first child in, uh, that April. 
So I felt like it went through like nothing to like super quick, like ready or not, here come the kids. Here's my cold notes. Yeah. Well, again, so you just kind of like go through it and then I rewind you a little bit. So uh, in this podcast, I like to I like to try to make it so that everyone can understand what we're talking about. So I yeah. know what endometriosis is. Yeah. But for people who may not, do you do you want to tackle that and explain that a little bit more rather than me sure. mansplaining something that I know through the grapevine? Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, well, I guess the, the it's a whole lot to do with endometriosis, but the main thing is that like the lining of your uterus. So every woman, you build your uterus. That's where the eggs implant into and then it dissolves when you have your period um your the that lining the endometrial lining actually grows outside of your uterus so it can get into your intestines your bowels your liver kidneys stomach it just goes wherever the hell it wants to go and because of that a lot of women who have more severe endometriosis can't have children or have a really hard time having children because your body's basically fighting this disease um, so while you're trying to grow a child, you're also battling this this disease without a cure. And some of the symptoms um, are really like severe pain that is constant. It affects going to the bathroom. It affects basically any and all part of your life. Yeah, and and it I think affects more women than people think it does. Like it's one of those things that you don't hear about it until you either know someone who has it or uh, like in my case, my wife, Lauren uh, battles with some endometriosis. And then you find out that when you start saying the word that then you hear all these stories kind of come forward and, and it can get really, really like I heard a, a story, but it making all its way all the way to the lungs and just like, so this for everyone listening, like this tissue naturally is supposed to shed and go through its regular cycle. It's supposed to stay, <laughs> it's supposed to stay in the uterus for its its purpose. So when it does start going beyond, and you can have a mild case of endometriosis that it's still in the uterus, but it's overactive. It's not shedding properly. It can make your uh, periods very uncomfortable. It can cause um, bleeding and spot spotting all the way through the month and, and all this kind of stuff as well. So it can go anywhere from just, making those kinds of inconveniences to potentially life-threatening. So it has, you know, everywhere and everything in between. So this other medication that you were on that was supposed to help with the fertility, that was, that was actually, I guess, something about it's supposed to make it so that the egg is able to attach more or something's supposed to happen. And that spikes up or speeds up the process of this growth. So in my case, actually, the medication for IVF was, is actually like pure hormone. And so estrogen increases uh, the growth of endometriosis. So you can imagine that if I'm taking pure hormones to try and make one egg into 25, what that could actually do to me internally. So it, it was not fun. And, and I probably should have stopped sooner than I did. But I, um, I'm a stubborn person. So here we are. I've, I've had multiple surgeries and I've had bits and pieces taken out and lasers and all this kind of stuff. And so I guess we'll see what the next phase of this all means. And, you know, you say like, I probably should have stopped sooner and all this kind of stuff, but, you know, having conversations with people who are in that, in that position where, you know, they, they have this family in mind when, when you get to that point where you're thinking about wanting to, have children and build your life and all this kind of stuff, that image doesn't go away when you start to have complications. If anything, it gets more vivid and you keep thinking about it more and more and more like this, this, you know, forbidden fruit that you can't seem to just grasp your hand around. And so, yeah, should haves and would haves and could haves and all that kind of stuff. But you obviously wanted to make it happen. And, and as you said, you, you did, you found not a plan B, but you found another way to yeah. have your family. Yeah, exactly. So you started the, you started the process with adoption and you were telling yeah. me a little bit before the actual call that you kind of went into a, a similar 
mindset as maybe a lot of people do going into adoption, which was looking for this kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, like unicorn child. But you you yes. discovered that the the world of adoption is a little bit different than that. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So I, you know, we when we looked into adoption, we wanted a newborn, healthy infant adopted from birth. Um, you know, open adoption is really scary to us at the time, but you know that's what we were really looking for. But when we went through all this training and the courses and you know, looked at the different types of adoption. So there's domestic, public, and international. Uh, domestic's more the private adoption that people hear of. Um, and then there is public adoption, which is foster care through our local children's aid, and international, which is obviously around the world. Uh, so we chose foster care or um, public adoption, and it really you know, we learned that the children who are coming into care aren't the newborn healthy babies. There are children who have significant trauma. Most of them are older. Uh, most of them have disabilities or have some type of um, mental health need or needs because of their time in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And which is, you know, really interesting. I know now that you can do like some of these DNA tests and everything for um, for, for people who are expecting children, like I've had conversations with people where I say, okay, well, what if the tests come back and, and there are going to be some complications, there's going to be some stuff coming up and people who kind of get, you know, a little uncomfortable with that and almost like, well, I don't know, do we continue with the pregnancy if we know there's going to be complex needs and all this, but going through this process, you, you knowingly went into the situation um, kind of knowing what Serenity was going to, yeah, be, be who she was, what the, what the process was going to be, and what you would potentially need as far as care goes. Yeah, and I, and honestly, like when we, you know, we're really in, involved in the special needs of the disability community, and like hearing the grief that so many families still carry because of that loss, because they had this picture of what their child was going to be. And they were shocked to learn they had X, Y, and Z, or, you know, there's horrible disabilities where, you know, like Rett syndrome, where a child is typically developing up until age three, and then they lose all of their skills. And, you know, it's a terminal disability. Um, whereas for, for John and I, like, we chose this, we knew, and I'm not trying to say that we enjoy it all the time because we certainly don't, but we knew what we were getting into. So I think that we're almost at an advantage because of it, because we, you know, we were able to get the background. We were able to talk to the doctors. We were able to learn, you know, what her potential future would look like. There's a lot of unknowns, but, you know, we kind of were ahead of the game. And if you don't mind me asking, like that conversation with your husband, with John, when you went from, you know, the idea of having this newborn healthy baby to, okay, are, are we going to do this? Like, what is what does a conversation like that even look like? I don't even know, to be honest. Um, in the foster care system or through public adoption, they host something called the Adoption Resource Exchange, or it's called the ARE. And so, you know, four times a year, pre-COVID, obviously, four times a year, all of the social workers in the public adoption field would come with information of children who are um, ready for adoption, who are, who are, you know, they're no longer a crowd ward, they're, or they're, sorry, they're now a crown ward and they're, you know, they're in adoption status. And so you go around this huge room and it's the most overwhelming and terrifying thing anyone can do. You go around this room and you look at pictures and you read histories and there were no babies mm -hmm. and there were no healthy babies, that's for sure. Um, and we were honestly walking around these different booths and we found this picture of this little girl who was the only little child being presented at that table and her table was empty um, there were hundreds and hundreds of people at this event and there was no one at this this booth and we we're like okay well let's just learn um, and we saw her her profile and I mean the amount of diagnosis that she had we couldn't even pronounce half of them and she's a cute little blonde-haired girl and you know her worker was really trying to talk her off and we're like um no this is not what we're looking for and as we were about to walk away she showed us this video of this little girl and they're trying so hard to talk about her strengths and how cute she is and you know some of her needs and a bit of her background and this whole time serenity was just not having it so she's like flopping over on her dog and like 
trying to break down the baby gate. And I was like, oh my God, this child is actually really awesome. So it wasn't a matter of like, we had this conversation of like, yes, we want a child with severe disabilities who's going to wear a helmet and, you know, be nonverbal for her life. But it's more like, oh my God, there's a child in there. And we were scared shitless the whole time. And we're like, okay, well, let's just put in, let's ask some more information. So we got some more information. We were completely overwhelmed, scared shitless, didn't know what we were doing, but we weren't scared enough to say no. So we said, okay, let's go to another meeting. So I don't know if there's necessarily ever like a sit down conversation of should we or shouldn't we, but it was more like, is this possible? Can, can we do this? Let's just hear a little bit more. So like in adoption, you hear these people having like these big aha moments where they just know this is their child. We never had that. Like we were scared. Mm. And then to look at a baby brother and he also has special needs and we're like, okay, well we're down the rabbit hole. So let's take them both. And so then even once you make the decision or the two of you made the decision, like, yes, we want to do this. This is still like pre that intensive uh, questionnaire and all this kind of stuff that was to come yes. after the fact. Yes. And then there was meetings upon meetings upon meetings. And we had to talk to so many people like uh, her, her medical team and the social work team and the therapists. And they had to really think like, can we actually do this? Do we have the resources and support? Is there a hospital close to us? What therapies can we do? Um, you know, can a, can a parent be at home? Like there was actually like, realistic things. And at that point, Serenity wasn't walking, nor was she um, supposed to walk. So, you know, trying to say, like, can we modify our house? Can we afford an accessible van? Like, these are all things they had to assess before they even thought of, of approving us. So then how far did you did you get Serenity before you ended up discovering that she had the younger brother? No. So we were in the process. We were, it was funny, actually. We were on our way. So she, they're from Windsor. So they're about four hours or so away from us. And we were literally in the car on the way to one of her disclosure meetings is what they call them as like sharing of information meetings. And our social worker called us and her exact words, I'll never forget, is there's a blip in her file. You guys need to pull over. So we pulled over. We're like, okay, this isn't going to work or something or they're not approving us or whatever it is. And they go, well... The blip is she has a baby brother and he was matched with another family, but this other family uh, doesn't feel comfortable raising both children because of Serenity's disability. So if you're willing to take them both, we'll disrupt that adoption and you can take them, but we need to know by the time you get here, so we can present his information to you. We'll see you in a couple hours. So that's kind of, we learned about him. So you went, that was from, an interesting you went from, okay, can we, make this work and can we afford you know the van and all this kind of stuff for one child with some mm -hmm. complex needs to potentially taking on two children of different ages of different um of different genders that you know has its own its own like on a regular basis own complications that come with that as well so yeah. well, i can imagine that kind of turning your head a little bit in the car ride there yeah. And it's like, can we actually do this? And yeah, it's so nice to get your happily ever after. And, and, you know, you, we had to keep ourselves in check because it's very exciting to get the call and to get the match and to say, oh my gosh, is, is this finally over? Is, is this trying piece finally over? and We can be a family. Mm. I mean, we, we had to really sit down and, and think, can we actually do this? And, and I mean, to, we aren't martyrs and, and we're not in this kind of savior mentality. Like we're doing this to form a family and can, can we do it? And are we the right people? So we had to have some pretty humbling conversations on that car ride. It's hard because he was a cute little bald headed 12 month old baby. So, I mean, we called him a little meatball. So it's hard to, to balance your heart and your, your brain in this kind of stuff. So for sure. Now, when, when you were able to bring them both to your place, because I feel like um, perhaps with, with children who maybe don't have as many complexities or uh, like, how old was Serenity at the time? Uh, she was three and a half. So was she, 
taking with like taken to the two of you right away or could there was there like a period where you could tell that she didn't really understand what was going on but you couldn't really explain it the way you wanted to or you know, how does that work in that process yeah the, the attachment was high. i mean we're still working on attachment they've been home for eight or nine years and, and it's an ongoing thing um i think for serenity like hmm, she's a routine kid and so we completely flipped her routine and we did our absolute best so even things like using the same fabric softener and using the same types of food and the same we even like went through their foster homes and took pictures of their bedding so it would be the same colors and you know we tried our best to make it the same but she regressed completely and you know at three she was probably functioning at a six-month level um at that point uh cognitively so like she stopped eating for a while and um on the flip side kai our son who at that point he's probably closer to 15 months by the time he moved home he attached to us right away like i was mom and dad within the first two weeks and i actually didn't realize that that wasn't a good thing i just assume oh my gosh this is it he's calling us mom we're great but that was just really indicative of his insecure attachment or disorganized attachment that that he has with us mm-hmm. so i think this for me it was a big shock and you know, John would have to sit at the our island in the kitchen and play with water to get her attention, um, to distract her enough so I can shove food in her mouth. And I would want, like, I wanted putting my hand over her mouth just so she could swallow something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a pretty hard, I didn't know how we would survive that. And, you know, at times we had really questioned our decision. Um, but slowly and surely we we began to um, feel more comfortable and they began to feel more comfortable and we built up from there. So now what does this, what does this kind of do as far as the dynamic within your, your relationship? Like how have you had time where the two of you, you and John have gone away or had some date nights or, you know, like what, (laughs) what does that do in that dynamic? John and I have not away overnight together since the kids have been home. Um, John has not spent a night away from our children, period. Uh, I'm very lucky to have a supportive husband who lets me go on solo vacations or a girl's night or whatever it is. But our kids are literally unable to sleep without him at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we had a date night. We're 11 years married i think we did something for our eighth year where we had dinner and we had to make sure serenity was um away at medically like fragile respite care and my mom watched the kids and i think we lasted three hours before um our we have another daughter abigail um so uh kai got completely triggered and um part of his disability is that self-regulation so we had to come home just for safety so we, I mean, we try and find our own little date night. So we'll watch a show and fall asleep on the couch or we'll sit out, you know, once the kids are asleep and have, you know, a drink on our patio or whatever it is. So we we try, but there's absolutely no couple time. And, and in fact, we actually sleep in separate beds because uh, Serenity needs 24-7 monitoring. And so literally one of us has to be up throughout the night for her and, so in order to keep our sanity, um, the parent who is not on call for the night, they actually get to sleep with the door shut and, you know, get to relax. Whereas the other parent is up and, I mean, she starts her day usually at 3 a.m. So mm-hmm. at least the other parent can sleep to a normal hour. So uh, this is, this to me, this is kind of some of that information. Like, is this the kind of stuff that they would potentially try to prepare you for is this stuff even talked about is like okay this is let's talk about what the future is going to look like and like how well does the system prepare you for this kind of stuff not at all not at all we we had i mean there were so many unknowns and i mean they told us serenity wasn't going to walk and she walked three weeks after she came home Mm. you know we were told that our son has um no disabilities and he has some very significant um, needs. Uh, although he's functioning, he does have significant needs. Um, so, I mean, I think part of it's the unknown and I can't necessarily blame the system for that, but we had to advocate very hard 
for a lot of supports and even things like a safety bed for Serenity. Her safety bed was over $12,000 and we had to fight really hard to get uh, financial support because that was just such a drain on us financially. So, I mean, we tried. We never thought we would end up sleeping in separate bedrooms, but I mean, it's our life and we're comfortable with it and we're secure enough in our relationship to know that we don't need to cuddle every night to to have a a happy marriage so we just had to really shift and redefine what family was and what a marriage was yeah and you know all you know that i teach mindfulness and you will we'll get to the point where i met you but you talk so much about it's great to have these goals it's great to you know, make these five-year plans that everyone always loves and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is every, every future, every, like a second from now is an unknown. And that the only yeah. thing that we can actually bear as a truth is what is happening right in the moment. So being able to adapt, being able to say, okay, well, this is what today looks like. And we'll see what tomorrow ends up being is, is such a big part of, of this, of this work. So have you found that, you know, having built in, in a lot of ways, these skills, these skills of adaptability of, um, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hoping that even, um, ways to cope with the, the tough days and all this kind of stuff. Do you find that this helps? in your your work life in your your day-to-day like do you find like stuff just kind of rolls off of you in comparison I do I mean I'm not I'm not saying that I haven't had my battles with mental health I I've been some pretty significant depressions and I absolutely live with anxiety so I want to be truthful and upfront about that but you you have to there's no way to survive this type of chaos and this type of life without kind of having that that shift in that that you know growth mindset and being present because I mean even this past weekend we woke up it was great and an hour later I'm in an ambulance with Serenity because she cracked her head open and you just don't know and you know if we dwell on that side if on the guilt and the anger and the frustration and the overwhelming um, emotions that come with with you know raising a child with significant needs then we'd never find happiness and we'd never find, you know, we'd lose, we lose sight of our why. And so John and I use a lot of humor. We're really sarcastic people, um, which is helpful. Um, and I find that other people who have kind of chaotic or complex lives, like they kind of have their own strategies that work. So for us, like, yep, we live in the moment and doesn't mean I don't freak out or have my, you know, times where I <laughs> woe is me, but then I get over it and I get over myself and we move on to the next thing. Mm. So how far into this process did uh, Abigail come along? So Abigail was our unicorn, um, our unexpected unicorn. So she, the kids were home for about two years and we had about two years of them being home. We had just kind of felt that we were getting a handle on things like, I wasn't having daily anxiety attacks. You know, we, our kids were eating. We we were eating ourselves. Like, you know, we were feeling like we we're in like kind of a better position. And we got a call from our social worker saying like, hey, there's a family. And I know you're not really looking to adopt, but I feel like you'd be a great match. And we're like, you're crazy. <laughs> no, there's a picture of a child with like a big helmet and they're going to run away. And so we said no. And then she called me a month later. She's like, okay, like, if you really are interested, you need to put in a profile book, like a, li- a life book of our family. So I was like, fine. And I was kind of out of spite because, that's, you know, I can be petty. Like I created this album of our family and I put Serenity at the front and center. I'm like, if you want to know who we are, like here it is. Like I'm not going to shy away from our family dynamics. And so I put us all in this book and they wanted to meet us. And so we met them and we just clicked instantly. They're amazing people and we're in instant friends. And so she came home in 2015. She was born. We were there the day that she was born. Uh, we named her um, with 
um, her her parents' permission. And so, yeah, I think Kai was three and Serenity was five when Abigail came home. So at the beginning... And she was a born healthy infant, so... It's amazing. So at the beginning yeah. of the podcast, we talked about, you know, trying to, to the best of one's ability, trying to support the siblings when there are situations happening. So now I, I look at I, I look at the dynamic where the needs of all of the children are very drastically different, but all children yeah. have needs. Yeah. So how has that uh, how has that been? balanced out and, and has it been a difficult process? Uh, absolutely. It's been difficult. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's been interesting because I feel like for us as parents and or as caregivers and as adults, like we, we've tried very hard to be mindful of that and to know that, you know, our youngest Abigail has two siblings with significant needs um, and she witnesses things that most children won't. But for her, it's just normal life. And so we do a lot of things like date night and giving our kids the space to ask questions and to um, have conversations that aren't always easy. Like, for instance, you know, by the time Abigail was three, she was telling her friends that her sister's brain is broken, uh, but her heart works. And that's just kind of the language she uses to to try and understand her, her siblings' needs. So, I mean, it's not perfect, and we're not perfect, and you know, we get frustrated and, and, you know, don't make the best choices always. But I think as a family, we've just kind of just allowed that space. So I, uh, I have a Reiki room in my house, total shameless plug there. And that is a room where our kids know that if they need space, one person can be in that room and the door shut and no one goes in. And so if they need time alone for whatever that reason, it's not questioned and you go in and that's your space. And so uh, we do that also with their bedrooms to try and give them that personal space. And, and we're, we're learning as we go, I think. It's, it's really interesting because when I, when I work with, often when I work with couples, the conversation of love comes up and what is love? And there's <laughs> so many people believe that love is passion. Love is infatuation and you know if if you really dive into a lot of the psychology behind what we think love is a lot of the times what it comes down to is a lot of these traumas childhood traumas that we talk about and we're looking to fulfill some some attachment needs and all this kind of stuff and so if we strip all of that away what what comes down to the the root of love is acceptance can i truly accept this other person, whoever it is, whether it's a family member, a significant other, can I truly accept them for who they are, for, for everything that they bring into this world? And that means the, the tantrum days, the beautiful days and everything in between. And, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about building a family, like to me, that's, that's what, that's, what's being created. It's this a place where, everyone can be accepted. And I think it, it should be, you know, not skipped over on, on John and yourself, like this idea of trying to be perfect. Like you're navigating, you're navigating an ocean that at any moment, a, a hurricane can just break out in and you're trying to, you know, steer this ship as smoothly as possible. But, you know, again, acceptance on, on everybody's front. And I think it's a, it's a really beautiful dynamic. And I love that language of like her brain's broken okay well maybe we can <laughs> there's there's some things to be said about that but her heart yeah. works. and that yeah. to me uh is just is beautiful because she's also speaking the language of maybe what her friends would understand as well and as that piece yeah where the heart works absolutely so in this process again we alluded to it uh, but in this process you shifted where your focus of work was so was that like what like working with these um, adoption social workers and everything and and thinking like oh I could have I could find a place I could see myself here. Um, so I had taken a few years off um, with the kids because obviously 
the gong show that it is. So I took a few years off and was really able to, to dive deep of what actually matters and what, what is important and where do I see a need. Um, and so a big part of it is the lack of support for adoptive parents. Mm. And, you know, you know, a lot of times these children are placed um, in homes and, you know, the adoption is signed and, and that's it. And so these families are left trying to figure out the world and trying to understand the needs and, and their own mental health. And so I joined an organization that specifically supports uh, adoptive kinship and customary care families who are raising children um, to try and get them that support and to try and get them that advocacy and, and those resources. So um, yes, I work um, with, with adoption agencies or with adoption practitioners and children's aid, but I also do a lot of support with families themselves to try and um, get whatever it is that they need to, to try and get access to it. Beautiful. And it's kind of like, you know, we talked about people get into social work because of, or we'll say the people that we know got into social work because of the background, the past and everything. And it's kind of like you, you flip the chapter in your book and now all of a sudden you have this whole other field to draw on and be inspiration for this new, this new sector of work that you're working in. And I'm, I'm sure, like, how does it work with balancing your, even in that world, your empathy and what you're seeing and when you hear people talk about their own stories and stuff, like, do you find that even that can be triggering in this new line of work? Absolutely. It can. Um, I mean, there's some kids who come from some really hard places and some children and families that I support have been through things that will continue to give me nightmares and I won't get into it out of respect for them, but it's some pretty atrocious mm-hmm. stuff. It's hard to not be affected by it. And, you know, at the same time, you know, hearing from families saying things like, um, you know, they can never adopt a child with a disability or we, I hear so much. I don't know how you do it when they hear my story and, and, you know, trying to juggle that and appreciate that not everybody is in the same place or space. Um, it's been hard to juggle that. Um, sometimes I'm just over it. I need a break <laughs> from talking about adoption related stuff. But at the end of the day, it's my life. It's what I, I chose personally and professionally. So although you know, I take breaks sometimes um, and do different things within the adoption field and, you know, go make more marketing and social media. It's still always is connected to me because I need, I don't know, it's, it's just a drive in me to help support people. And when I am triggered, then I know it's time to, to switch a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that piece around being triggered kind of segues into when you and I met. Yeah. So. I have the yoga studio. We do yoga teacher training. There's, there's my shameless plug. Um, and I remember you walked in to the studios. This is before we always like to do a little interview with people to see if they're going to be a good fit for our teacher training. So you came in and at the time you had um, a bunch of dreads, which was, you know, Lauren has dreads and all this stuff. And I remember hearing a little bit about your story there because you were simply trying to be upfront with us saying like, I want to do this teacher training, but I have demands on my time. So I'm not going to lie. There's going to be some times where I won't know till that morning that I'm not going to be able to make it. And, you know, you were, you were very upfront with us, which, you know, it sounds like it was a skill that you had developed through this entire process. And so Lauren and I remember having the conversation and like, yeah, this is who, this is who we want to do yoga teacher training for and uh, you came into the program and it was great, but I could see how so often you'd be on your mat or uh, cause there was times that you were zooming in and stuff like that, but you would be on your mat and then you'd have, you'd have <laughs> a parade of kids coming through. You'd have um, sounds in, in the background of what sounded like chaos. And yeah. say, well, okay, well, John's got that. It's all, you know, yeah. pick up for a second. That's uh, fine. It's under control and, and all this kind of stuff. So what was the shift where you thought, okay, I need to focus on, on yoga. And what were you hoping to kind of get out of it from that process? Yeah, I remember that. I was, I thought I was so cocky walking in there with my dreads. And then I started the program. I was like, oh, wait, I actually have to do work here. Uh, it was really funny. Uh, good learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it came to the point where it was like, 
my life was around my children. I had lost my identity. It was no longer Catherine. I was Serenity's mom. Everywhere I went, no one even knew my name. I have a different last name than my family. No one even knows my last name. And I was like, okay, I want to do something for me. And I mean, I'm ongoing battling depression. So I was on medication. I was seeing the doctors, but I knew there was something more. And I always enjoyed yoga. So it's like, hey, why don't I just learn more about this? I can, you know, the way you guys had set up your um, training was really great because it was like one weekend a month and I, I knew I could get support in for the most part. And, you know, I just wanted to jump in and do something for me and, and spark my interest in really my own healing. Like, I don't think I've ever had aspirations of starting my own yoga studio or anything like that, but I, I knew it was something that, that I wanted to do for me and I had no idea what I was walking into and the amount of personal growth. And I mean, you guys had, we talked about things that really, you know, I had to face, face my own demons, which isn't comfortable, but was absolutely needed. I remember there being a lot of tears in, in your session with your group of, of lovely individuals, but it, it seems like it comes in waves. There's those people that will get a class filled with people who are just looking at, okay, this is something I enjoy doing and I want to expand and grow from here. And then we'll get a session where it's a lot of people, which is beautiful that it all kind of comes together that way, where there's a lot of people that are like looking for that self-discovery, which is so much about, you know, what that first 200 hours is all about. People think of the uh, YTT 200 and they think of, yeah, okay, I'm going to focus on, you know, how I'm going to be as a teacher where that's kind of like, that is that time. That's that time to, oh my goodness, how do these philosophies, how do these principles apply in my life? What are these, you know, when I go into a heart opener or something like that, what, what does that bring up for me and, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember your group in particular was uh, just such a great group for that kind of growth along the way. It was so run, honestly, though, like, I'm, I'm they, I consider most of them my closest friends now. And we're what a year, it took us a kind of a bit longer to finish it thanks to COVID. But mm-hmm. I mean, we check in and we go for coffee dates. And I mean, I think it was because we, however the universe worked, we, they, we were put together and we were all in this raw, vulnerable state. And, you know, for me, I'm not a vulnerable person. I'm very good. I think, I think I'm very good at putting up these walls um, because you open it up and that's a scary place for me to be. But, you know, even myself, I cried and I am not a crier and because I feel like I was able to just open up. And sometimes our conversation would veer off for like half an hour of nothing to do with what was at the curriculum, but it was just really needed to talk about. And I think like it was, yes, I learned yoga. Yes, I learned that I hate to do the downward dog, but I learned so much else about myself and my connection with people and my body and um, self-confidence and growth and all that stuff that I didn't think yoga was about. I just wanted to, you know, be able to go through a class without being winded. Mm. And I learned who I was, basically. I feel like it's such a cliche thing to say as the truth. I, I learned about who I was. Um, yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's, it's interesting because even with like these podcasts, people will ask, well, what's the podcast about? And I've had so many different podcasts now on completely different topics. And yet my background is in mindfulness meditation. And yet no matter what the quote unquote subject matter is, like, that's what we're, we're talking about. Like, look at just the story that, that we're talking about and you explaining, you know, your whole process, your life, your journey and all that kind of stuff. Like that growth is, is the basis of, of this journey, the the idea of enlightenment, it seems so heavy and, and, you know, unobtainable and all this stuff. But another translation for enlightenment, as we talk about in our YTT 200, is that self-realization, getting to know yourself. If you put yourself in uncomfortable positions, or positions that end up being uncomfortable, you were going to learn about yourself. So like I, I listened to your story and I, I, I ask myself, how would I be in these situations? How could I, could I keep my cool? Yeah, like I'm, you know, people see me as uh, a pretty Zen person most of the time, but I don't know if I've been tested to the, the extent that, 
you have, or at least in the same ways that you have. I know I haven't been tested in the same ways that you have. And that's the same thing with the YTT. We don't mind when the conversation starts to veer and people start talking about, you know, what's going on in their life and their past and all this kind of stuff, because that's yoga. It's not just about the asanas and everything. So yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely appreciated that again about, about your group. Now I heard, I think I heard a dog in the background there. Oh, I'm wondering if you could hear the chaos because everyone's outside now. So I apologize. Oh, the dog in the chaos too. We even talk about my dog. That's where I'm going with this. So (laughs) to, to put, to put (laughs) more into your very full cup, you adopted a dog. We did. Yeah. Do you you want to talk about your dog? Lyra, she is our rescue pup from Manitoba. And so um, we had a small palm tree uh, previous named Equal. And she was a little, I don't know. I don't know what, she had a lot of sass. It was her, her house, her world. We catered to her. That's just what we did. Um, and when she passed away at the beginning of COVID, uh, it, it impacted my children significantly and I mean for any child who begins their life in loss you can imagine how any little loss Mm. becomes a big deal and so we had to do a lot of therapy and support and I felt that we were at a place to adopt a dog and apparently the rest of the world also was at a place to adopt a dog so you know I put on these applications and we found this organization who found us the perfect dog and so she came home and Lyra is we're not too sure what her mix is she's a brindle color uh she came from Manitoba flew was in four different foster homes uh and ended up here and Lyra is paralyzed so in her hind leg so she is completely incontinent and she can't walk on her back leg so she has a wheelchair um a spicy little dog. You probably heard her in the back, um, but she fits our chaos. She fits our family well. So, you know, if she's a little wheelchair. We, we go for walks a couple times a day and we've become masters of changing dog diapers. So why not add more? Why not add yeah. more? Well, and, and, you know, we talk about it, it being, yes, it's adding more. There's more than just, okay, dog poops outside. I pick it up, put it in a bag and get rid of it and all this kind of stuff. But there's also like, I feel like this script that would normally be in someone's mind again, just like with the, just like with the children of wanting that unicorn child and all this kind of stuff. I feel like that script is in so many people's minds as to adopting a dog or what like everything should look like. And I think that's the beautiful, the beautiful thing that's, that's kind of like come from this whole uh, development as a, an outsider looking in is like these scripts have been broken down. These scripts in yeah. your life are <laughs> they're gone. There's no there's no book that you're opening up and looking at anymore that says, oh, okay, this is what a family supposed you know with air quotes here for everyone listening supposed yeah. to look like. And uh, the average family goes on vacation this many times, and the average family does this and this. And like throw the word average out the window, yeah. and you're just left with family. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what you're building there. So I, I just want to be, or you have, you have there and it's, it's, it's very, uh, endearing. It's very endearing. I it's, love, I follow you, you and your family on, on Instagram and it's, Instagram. it's uh, I love your dog wheeling around. <laughs> <laughs> she just, I mean, and for us, it's, it's literally, and we get comments or how do you do it? Or why would you do that? It's just, you know, that word normal, that, that is normal to us. I mean, we're, we're house built um, in, that's going to be accessible because we're going to have a daughter. We have a daughter with accessibility needs. So why wouldn't we have a dog with accessibility needs? Mm. It just seems logical to us. And I mean, what's another diaper to change at this point? Like, I don't know. It just seems she's perfect for us. And I think that we're perfect for her. So I mean, outside world, they can think what they want, but we're, we're happy. So. Beautiful. Now with the, uh, cause we are coming up to our, our time. Is there in the realm of, of things you wish you 
have known about, maybe resources you knew, wish you knew about when it comes to adoption and all this kind of stuff. Is there anything out there for anyone who is looking at adoption or looking at supporting in any way? Is there anything that you wish that you knew or had or something that you know about now that you'd like to just kind of throw out there in the last few minutes that we have? For sure. Um, well, first and foremost, I think everyone should research what post-adoption depression is. Um, it's a term that no one understands uh, unless they live through it, uh, which is something that I have. Uh, so do your research. I'm going to plug the agency I work for. Um, so getting connection with Adopt for Life. Um, they support awaiting parents, adoptive parents, kinship and customary care. And we do a lot of like webinars and support groups and that kind of stuff to try and help support families kind of going through it. So feel free to to reach out to us. It's free to join and you can hear me talk a bit more as well because I do a lot of webinars with them. Amazing. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. And again, like every time we get a chance to sit down and, and have a conversation, I'm getting learning more about you and, and your journey and everything. So, so happy that you, you walked in our door and, and uh, decided to spend that time doing our training and everything. But uh, thank you so much for today. It was fantastic to connect. COVID has kept us a bit of uh, at a distance, but um, it was great talking to you today. You too. Thanks so much. Have a great one. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Higher Potential Living Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Higher Potential Living and the services we offer, please visit www.higherpotentialliving.com. We offer different online courses, in-person courses, mindfulness and meditation retreats, and we have a variety of different coaches that are there to help you with anything that you might be going through. So please check us out. You can also help support the work we do by subscribing to this podcast anywhere you're listening and of course, sharing it and telling your friends all about it. Thank you so much and have a great day.